and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back. If you're a uh, regular listener, first-time listeners, always a warm welcome to you guys. Thanks for finding the show. Hope you enjoy it. Um, been trying to put out as much uh, high-quality content as regularly as I can. Um, and, I mean, I know I've mentioned this a number of times, but, uh, you know, these these things are subject to the craziness of my daily life. And uh, I hope that uh, you guys are enjoying the most recent episodes and also you know i always trying to keep in mind that i do my best to get these out weekly so uh, a couple people who emailed me asking when's the next episode uh hey i'm trying <laughs> but i really appreciate all the support you guys are great and um Thank you so much for reaching out. Anybody, always feel free to contact me, ericdreitzer at gmail.com. Very easy. You can also follow me on my Patreon page. Um, but I would normally now do my song and dance for Counterpunch, but I kind of threw my own little self-promotion there in front. But Counterpunch really needs your guys' support as well. This is, I think, uh, one of the most important platforms that we have on the left in the alternative media, particularly given um, the developments, especially recently, Recent developments. I've seen a lot of, I would say, um, well, suspect uh, analysis from a lot of places, uh, both on right and left, fake news, real news, bad analysis, uh, fake analysis, I don't know what you want to call it, but um, I think the Counterpunch is setting the bar pretty high, and although not everything on Counterpunch is 100% in agreement with my views, I really appreciate that Counterpunch represents that alternative, that space that we so desperately need. So, if you agree with me, a print subscription to the magazine is a great way to support Counterpunch. Um, it's one of those rare uh, sites that still prints on paper, so you can get a subscription to the magazine, or you could just make a donation to, through PayPal or by calling the Counterpunch office. You can find the information on the website, um, so please consider it. All right, um, I want to turn to my guest today. I'm very happy to uh, welcome her, well, back onto this show and probably speaking to me now for, I don't know, the fourth or the fifth time, maybe. Um, she, dare I say, a friend of the show. Uh, she is here to talk about a number of very important issues. So let me introduce Gia Lee onto the program. Gia is a New York City public school teacher. She's also a parent of a student in New York City public schools. Uh, she is, uh, she recently in 2016 ran for president of the Moore Caucus, which is the Movement of Rank-and-File Educators, a social justice caucus within the the United Federation of Teachers, the Teachers Union here in New York City. Uh, she is a organizer of the opt-out movement, uh, which we will talk about later in this conversation. And uh, perhaps most importantly at this very moment, she is the candidate for lieutenant governor on the Green Party ticket. You can follow her on Twitter at Gia, that's J-I-A, the number four, L-T, governor. So that's Gia for lieutenant LT governor. And uh, you can also follow her on Facebook, Gia Lee for lieutenant governor. A uh, lot to talk about with Gia. Gia, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Welcome back. Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for having me back. And I'm definitely a friend of Counterpunch. And uh, Counterpunch considers you a friend as well. So um, with that, you know, pleasantries out of the way, I want to talk about Gosh, a lot of things that are going on in your world, uh, obviously the campaign leading up to, uh, you know, what's going to happen in a couple of months. But before we get to that, tell us about you, Gia. I mean, who are you and what kind of work have you been doing uh, previous to this campaign and what got you into this sort of activism in the first place? Sure. Uh, wow. <laughs> so where do I begin? Let's see. Actually... You know, like I would could say, um, a lot of teachers that I've known, I've been teaching um, in New York City for about 18 years now uh, as a special education teacher, all the way from grades, kindergarten to, um, to high school. And in my experience, you know, it's been primarily been during this entire time um, of no child left behind, of, you know, race to the top, race to nowhere, really, uh, policies coming from the federal government that by now, most people, I think, have come to realize that these uh, federal policies have been, you know, created in partnership with for-profit, um, you know, charities, I guess you could call it. I don't even know what we can really call it. 
but you know people with other uh, interests that don't really have anything to do with the interests of uh, public education in a democracy, right? So how I got started was really as just a teacher and not really into politics, believe it or not. Um, somebody who kind of kept my head down, just wanted to teach. And it quickly became clear that that wasn't an option. It was either be active and vocal about what you know I was seeing happening to me, my colleagues, and the children, or you know leave the profession. So it was kind of a fight or flight situation. And in about 2008 or so, you know, New York City, there were the school grade reports. So schools were being graded based on uh, test score growth models and wreaking havoc, basically, in most schools, particularly and disproportionately in schools of high poverty, predominantly black and brown communities. And you can see that the majority of the schools that have been labeled and uh, slated for turnaround, which is a state term for takeover of a school by outside um, contractors and consultants. Um, and then many of those schools have closed and been turned over to charters. Um, that all of this in the, these systems were taking place in what I would you know, argue is a systemically racist system and at a very rapid pace, not just in New York City, but we were seeing it happening nationally. And so I got to the point where, you know, I couldn't say no. And like, we were just couldn't take it anymore. I found other teachers through the grassroots education movement. There was a film and it's still available for free. I think it's on Vimeo called the inconvenient truth behind waiting for Superman. And you'll see Brian Jones and Julie Cavanaugh who are hosting it um, this very, you know, like 30 minute documentary about privatization in New York city at the time. And I just basically emailed the email, the contact info at the end of the film. And that was the, I mean, the rest is history. I got connected to a bunch of other New York city public school teachers and parents, um, concerned community members who formed this group that then later, um, transformed into, a caucus within our union called MORE, the Movement of Rankified Educators. And then there was a parent group um, called Change the Stakes and that was organizing around high-stakes standardized testing and, and specifically through the action of opting out. And so, you know, through that work, I worked basically in both organizations through MORE and Change the Stakes um, trying to bridge, you know, the school community as the parents, the students with, you know, the, the teaching, the teachers. And in, um, what was it? 2015, I was asked to testify before the U.S. Help Senate Committee on the reauthorization of the Elementary Education Second, you know, Secondary Education Act. Um, and then basically took a position as a conscientious objector and stated publicly that I would no longer be administering the state standardized tests, which I was told, you know, was basically um, a, taking a job action, was refusing to do something that was mandated to do um, by administering the state tests. And then the year after that, um, as a member of MORE, we ran against the leadership of our union, which has basically been the same caucus, the unity caucus has been in power for, I mean, since the beginning of the, of the union for about 50 or so years. And so, you know, trying to have a voice within our union and then fighting privatization of public education has been a huge uphill battle, but, um, very clearly realizing that the answer doesn't lie in necessarily picking the right leaders and making sure they get into positions of power, but really examining these structures of power and 
how they are serving us or not serving us and how we can change this and um, what I refer to as like inverting this pyramid um, and building a grassroots movement, which, you you know, I think we can tell it's there are signs of it happening everywhere, um, particularly in New York State around this election, um, hoping that it moves in the right direction. So, I mean, that's kind of I and I went on, but kind of the background of how I got involved and into into now. Yeah, and uh, one of the points I think that's worth noting is that when you say that you're uh, struggling against the Unity Caucus within the UFT, it's important for listeners, uh, particularly those outside of New York and outside of the education world, to understand that that Unity Caucus is connected to the upper echelons of the establishment in the Democratic Party. Randy Weingarten, formerly the head of the UFT, now uh, you know probably the most prominent uh, Democratic uh, education leader in the country. Very close with uh, Hillary Clinton. Obviously, Andrew Cuomo here in New York is connected through a lot of these same channels as well. So when you're saying struggling against the leadership of the UFT and in challenging them from the Moore caucus, a social justice oriented caucus, this is also in political terms, the radical left or the far left or whatever you want to call it, the progressive social justice oriented left against the neoliberal centrist left. Or Democrats. Yes. Yes, so, absolutely. So, mm-hmm. so in defining it in those terms, in in a, in a sense, one could see uh, the campaign that you're involved in, which we'll talk about throughout this conversation. But the campaign that you're involved in for lieutenant governor on the Green Party ticket is really, in some senses, an extension of that same fight, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes, I, I'm really glad you see that connection. So let's talk a little bit about um, uh, the current state of the fight uh, to save public education, because that's really where you've been on the front lines. Um, So uh, we've seen the privatization movement. We've seen these for-profit companies, including these multi-billion dollar companies like Pearson, that have essentially uh, taken over a, a sort of a stranglehold over public education. But what does this actually look like? What does that translate to in the daily uh, life of a teacher in New York City or really anywhere around the country? Because New York is certainly not the only place that's experiencing all of these same phenomena. Yeah, you know, the, it's interesting because the there's a, a very direct pattern that can be seen. So um, I've spoken to people in Puerto Rico, in um, Los Angeles, Chicago, Florida, Texas, Arizona, and there seems to be almost like a playbook for privatization. Um, and it starts often with, you know, some type of measure or policy being imposed in a district, um, first citing that, you know, things are not going as well as they should in the public school system and they want to improve it. And so suddenly a policy might come forward and you can actually trace the language to, um, to Alec. And if you, you know, that's the American Legislative Exchange Council where a lot of very conservative policies have um, been created, but, you know, for some type of centralized control of the Department of Education in any given local or district. So whether it's um, mayoral control or state takeover or, you know, some type of centralized control where it takes away power from um, democratically elected school boards what have you, like, we'll see that a lot in the big metropolitan cities like Chicago um, and New York City, we have mayoral control and in many other places. Another um, piece of that then extends to when, when there's centralized control, then they can dictate, okay, we're going to change our entire evaluation system for teachers. And it's going to be based on some kind of standardized test and in order for us to be able to, to measure outcomes on a standardized test, all the schools have to have a standardized curriculum uh, instead of standards. And so all of a sudden you see complete uh, changes in who controls 
what is being taught in the schools, how it's being taught, and how it's being evaluated. All and of the mechanisms ha- are now under the control of some centralized place. Yeah, and it's 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 A, about the control, right? And B, it's also about the creation of a captive market, to use corporate terminology, because these companies, like I said, Pearson, but I mean, I'm picking on Pearson because it's one of the big ones, but there right. are a number of them. Um, they are essentially capitalizing on these sort of right-wing uh, free market type policies. So where before you might have had, you know, a set of standards, but no set curriculum, now you have a company that gets a billion dollar contract to develop mm-hmm. the curriculum to develop the materials that go with the curriculum and then to develop the tests that go with the materials and the curriculum and then to do the trainings to teach the people to evaluate the tests and so on and so on and so on. In other words, it's this self-replicating, you know, privatized kind of profit cycle that they've created in education. And that's really what uh, you and, and the Moore Caucus and many others around the country are fighting against, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. We don't just see it as an attack on, you know, working class people and, you know, uh, turning our, you know, a cornerstone of democracy into a capitalist machine, um, for profit, which is definitely has become, I read an economist's, uh, article about, was it? Oh my gosh, almost a full year ago. And the entire issue was dedicated to the fastest growing industry internationally and that was in education, um, specifically in education technology, ed tech. It's a multi-billion dollar industry globally. And um, in the one area of it that's fastest growing is AI or artificial intelligence, and that's the kind of software that's being embedded into a lot of these um, curriculums that are now put into, you know, ba- you know with the, the laptops and all of the computers that schools are being uh, pressured to, you know, prioritize their funding, their very limited funding into these ed tech so that they can have a quote unquote edge, right? in having their students pass these tests. Uh, they're actually prioritizing ed tech and education software over actual human educators and providers and related service providers. Um, and so it's, it's a huge problem because when you have for-profit entities taking control of education, they also control the content, again, and what and how students are being taught. Um, you know, it's something out of an Orwellian no- novel, right? But it's happening. There are places that actually have entire districts um, that are going towards internet-based education systems and doing away with brick-and-mortar school buildings. And it seems to be that that's probably the logical progression in all of this because it's on the one hand, it's the it's the profit that's generated by selling all of this content, all of these materials and all of the rest of that. And then simultaneously, it's using all of those uh, materials as essentially a weapon against mm-hmm. teachers, against teachers' unions, against the profession itself. So simultaneously, you're able to extract profit for your shareholders while also driving down wages, removing tenure, and all of the other cornerstones of what has traditionally made the teaching profession. So it's kind of this sort of two-pronged assault on, on uh, well, education and children and uh, these institutions that, and I would just add, are historically um, some of the most uh, uh equitable institutions that exist in the United States. I mean, the struggle for uh, open public education was well over 50 years ago. And here we are in 2018, essentially fighting to save it. Yes. Yes. You know, the, the idea that we are probably swinging the pendulum back, you know, far beyond 50 years into some unknown territory right now is frightening, but, um, you know, I think that you, if you look across the nation, there are definite signs of uprisings happening, um, where teachers are fighting back in places that, 
you thought were going to be done for. Um, like in West Virginia, Arizona, Oklahoma, now Los Angeles, California, you know, teachers are rising up and, and actually taking action and going on strike. Uh, a lot of them are actually going against their own union leaderships in many cases by taking these actions. Um, but it's just a sign of, of the battles to come. And with the attacks on labor, on unions, but through the Janus case, um, you know, they privatizers probably are thinking, you know, they're just hitting each nail into the coffin of public education and, you know, democratically controlled spaces, um, but not without a fight. Right. And, and I think it's also probably important to note that 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 fight that we're seeing in these places, like you mentioned, you mentioned West Virginia, you mentioned Oklahoma and Arizona. These are about as deeply red states as there mm-hmm. are. And we also see uprisings of teachers in very blue places like California, like in Illinois or Chicago mm-hmm. specifically and elsewhere at Seattle, elsewhere mm-hmm. as well. So so. In a sense, what we have is kind of a a, a movement that is, in some senses, um, you know, uh, crossing. I don't want to say crossing partisan lines, but it's almost transpartisan, as it were, isn't it? Yes, um, I have to say, I've had the opportunity to go down to West Virginia and meet with many of the teachers there, and also from Oklahoma and Arizona, uh, and we all recognize that consciousness is happening through a common struggle class consciousness you know a consciousness about the role of unbridled capitalism um and all of the the power structures that are play that people have become disillusioned about people who voted for trump are now completely disillusioned or voted for their republican senators um and governors are completely disillusioned now and um, through this common struggle, they're actually finding a consciousness. Yeah, and I think that that's I think that that's a critical piece, and obviously, especially those that voted for uh, you know uh, Tea Party type candidates uh, mm-hmm. or Trump and and uh, Trumpist type candidates. Obviously, that's an awakening for a lot of them, and 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 I think that teachers are historically uh, on the front lines of a lot of struggles. Now, there's you know historic you know historically there's a kind of a checkered record for for teachers, uh, even for the UFT with the uh, with its history in in New York. City, but um, I guess the question that I want to ask you is: to what extent? To what extent are we also seeing insurgencies within these unions? Obviously, the Moore Caucus in New York has uh, mounted its insurgency and is ongoing. But I mean, is this also a trend that we're seeing generalizing around the country? There are. It's definitely uh, so. More caucus. The Moore Caucus is part of a national network of social justice caucuses met some of them who have taken over their unions, such as in Chicago, um, in Los Angeles, in, uh, several other places, uh, Baltimore, St. Paul, sorry. Um, in Boston, actually Massachusetts in a large part with, uh, the victory of, uh, EDU, the EDU caucus, and I'm throwing out these caucus names, but because of some of our networking and trying to develop a grassroots uh, labor organizing model versus a top-down bureaucratic, um, you know, practices that you know so many of us have only known for you know years and years, they're actually able to transform their unions in large part and also learning lessons along the way. Um, I'll give you an example. I know that for, for, uh, people in Massachusetts, the teachers in Massachusetts, they easily, almost easily won the presidency of the Massachusetts teachers association through Barbara Mataloni. And she will tell you that, um, you know, Winning that seat was a huge surprise, but when she got there, she realized that so many of the executive board members were not uh, on board for grassroots movement. They wanted to continue to negotiate in the way that they have been behind closed doors with, 
you know, prominent Democratic politicians and leaders, um, you know, to get the best deal that they could get, which is a lot of what we hear in New York City and in New York State. Um, and so relying on the caucus to wor- do the grassroots work and to get trained in how to have organizing conversations um, at the local and site level, I'm talking about the school site level, um, was critical in them winning uh, the measure, the ballot to measure that, uh, I don't know if you remember, they, it was on the same day as the Trump, announce, Trump election announcement, um, they won over the, a charter ballot measure. They won overwhelmingly over Goliath of millions of dollars being put into this uh, policy that they really, this resolution that um, was being pushed down to increase charter caps. It was through EDU's work and their grassroots uh, organizing that they were able to beat that measure. So, you know, these kinds of things are happening um, in small pockets across the state. It's inspiring for, you know, those of us who are finding it really, really hard. So, um, you know, some people might shake their head and go, it's impossible. The powers to, they, you know, the powers that be have too much power. We'll never overwhelm them. It's simply just not true. It's possible. Absolutely right. And um, speaking of uh, trying to, um, you know, do, do the impossible or, or, you know, surmount the insurmountable, um, I want to know about your recent trip to Puerto Rico, because I know that uh, just before the school year began uh, a few days ago, you were in Puerto Rico for an extended period of time. And I know that you were working with some, uh, you know, fellow teachers and other activists there. But I want to know, uh, A, what you guys guys were doing there and B, maybe most importantly, what did you see? I mean, you were there essentially a year or a little less than a year after the devastating hurricane. Tell us what you saw both in terms of the devastation from the hurricane, but also the economic and political devastation that predated the hurricane. Yeah, so uh, more is closely aligned and um, friends with FMPR, the Federation of teachers, which is uh, one of the locals um, in Puerto Rico. It's based in San Juan. They have been probably the most radical militant leftist teachers union um, in Puerto Rico. And so actually when the hurricane hit, as soon as they were able to, they were sending us messages about um, the conditions, um, how they were doing, and uh, and literally immediately, the probably the the week following, um, Mercedes was uh, who is the president, Mercedes Martinez was already reaching out to other executive board members to start figuring out where all the teachers were, how they were doing, um, and then shortly after, I visited them. It was a few months later. And I'll tell you that when I went then and went again this, you know, just this summer, it wasn't a whole lot of change. There were still many um, traffic signal lights still not working on, in major um, intersections. So electricity still not working. Uh, running water in many places still not happening. Um, there are still roads that are not passable. There's, you know, it's what's crazy to me is that there were communities that FMPR worked with to restore the schools, you know, to fix them up, clean them up, get them ready. You know, this was like a year ago. Um, And then schools in places that had almost been abandoned. um, But in places where the schools were completely ready and were even given the thumbs up to reopen last year, we're told that they were going to be closed this year. So they, the closures, uh, the closures that were slated for under the governor's budget proposal that got passed, there were over 230 schools uh, with a proposal to um, introduce charter schools and a voucher system. 
again, I'm going to go back to the pattern that we see here across the United States. Um, this is exactly what happened when Katrina hit New Orleans, right? They closed most of the schools. The teachers, I'll talk about the teachers for just a moment. So you have hundreds and hundreds of teachers who were suddenly told uh, two days before the last day of school that they no longer had a position and would be reporting to a central regional office to figure out what their placement was. And then parents and students not knowing where they were going to, you know, all summer until the last, until days right before school started. It was utter chaos. It sounded like what are the stories that I heard out of um, New Orleans with students, you know, parents and students saying that they have to travel long distances again on roads that are still not completely fixed um, and intersections that are not, the electricity is not working. People still without running water. And, and then you have teachers who have, you know, if you're a unionized teacher, you know, there's, certain rules like of seniority, tenure, license areas. Um, those rules I discovered were basically being thrown out. I happened to just go, my Spanish is not perfect, but I went um, with a couple of people who are from, you know, states who are studying what's happening down there, who helped translate for me. Uh, I happened to be there the week before school was starting and all these teachers who had lost positions, their schools were closed, were told to, you know, report to regional offices. I went to a couple and what I saw was, I, I, I no words, just no words, lines and lines of teachers completely confused. It was chaos. Um, people who had been teaching in one area for 18 years, suddenly being told they were going to teach in a different licensed area. Meanwhile, people with no experience were be given being given positions that those others who had experience, you know, like they were getting those positions out of seniority line. They have a whole system in place that was being um, ignored. All those senior seniority rules, tenure rules um, were being ignored. So there's a lot of high emotions, um, people feeling frustrated. Uh, a teacher told me that there are many women who are teachers and single mothers and they're the sole, uh, you know, providers for their children. They were, I mean, it was very emotional, um, sitting in those spaces, seeing this happen. And so, and I, you know, still, I don't know what's happening, but there's, I sat with, I could go on and on, but I sat with one school community that had basically been occupying their school since the day it, you know, went out for summer. So every day, teachers, parents, um, students would base were basically occupying the school for 24 hours. They changed the locks so that outsiders couldn't go in because they were refusing to um, see the school to closure. Several generations of families had attended there. I met a grandmother who attended the school, the the children, and then their children. Um, refusing to, to cede the school to the, to the government um, and being completely ignored. And it turns out the school that they were being sent to was going to be overcrowded. There were more teachers than they needed. So they were saying, why don't you just keep our school open? <laughs> so it was a lot of things like, like that happening, just chaos. You know, that reminds me a lot of a lot of the things that we heard from uh, teachers in New Orleans after Katrina. And, yes. you know, without without getting into without getting into, you know, theorizing on to whether or not this was a orchestrated conspiracy mm. or if this was just uh, disorganized chaos. It certainly does remind us of that uh, famous expression, uh, infamous, I guess, uh, you know, from the neocons, you know, never, never let a good disaster go to waste. Yes. Um, and um Matter of fact, was that Rahm Emanuel? Now that I think about it, uh, <laughs> in, in any in any case, um, 
it does seem that in Puerto Rico, what's happening now is something similar to New Orleans in the sense that there is an attempt to deliberately force these schools into closure by Mm -hmm. not funding them, by not repairing them, by not providing the materials, by not putting teachers where they're supposed to be, by not providing students with what they need and on and on and on, that it's a a way of uh, essentially sabotaging these schools in order to create a pretext to close them down, privatize and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is there any talk among the people that you met in Puerto Rico about this being to some extent deliberate or at least part of a broader strategy? Strategy. Oh, yes. So I don't know if you are aware, but Naomi Klein was down there um, and did and covered actually while she was there. I can't remember exactly when it was, but there just happened to it, her visit happened to coincide with a conference that was happening. It was an international gathering in Puerto Rico. And, you know, and I can't, oh, I'm sorry, I completely forgot. Uh, the name of it, but it's basically like a digital, um, digital economy. I think that's what it's called. Um, it has to do with, you know, they call it ecotourism, but what's happening is outsiders are coming in and because of the devastation and the land really not, especially farmland, uh, not being recovered, the government is selling land off cheap, on the cheap, um, and outsiders are coming in and snatching that land up. There's a vested interest in having people move out of the island. It's being seen as an international destination, despite its position in a very you know, highly active hurricane area. Um, I don't know what they have planned, but uh, there's there's a lot of economic activity happening, but not in favor of the working people. I want I didn't say this, but I'll point out that the touristy areas are don't you know they look like they're completely fixed up. Okay, I know that there's a golf course on the north uh, northwestern side around that area that where the communities are uh, still devastated. There hasn't been a lot of recovery, but the golf course has been fully recovered. Right, this very luxury um, golf course, and then in San Juan, where it's a high tourist area, uh, streetlights are working, um, buildings are relatively like fixed up compared to places where people actually live. Again, echoes of New Orleans, echoes of a number of other yes. uh, examples. Um, all right, we're we're overdue for the break, so let's let's jump to a break. And okay. uh, when, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about Puerto Rico and connecting that and uh, the activism that you've been doing for a number of years now with this campaign that you're involved in. It's really, mm-hmm. I think, critical that we make these connections because this isn't just a normal uh, political campaign. This is essentially an activist's campaign. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, Uh, We'll talk more about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back.
we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Gia Lee. Again, I, I, I really do recommend that you follow her on social media and follow all of the, um, you know, all of the information, both from her and from the campaign. Uh, uh, on Twitter, it's at Gia, that's J-I-A, the number four, L-T, Governor. That's Gia for Lieutenant Governor. Same on Facebook. Uh, I recommend you uh, follow that, even if you're not necessarily, uh, you know, in New York and, and, and voting in a campaign uh, specific to New York. I think it has relevance around the country and in, in many ways around the world, as we've been talking about here. So, Gia, if we could just kind of uh, come back to the Puerto Rico question and connect that with uh, the campaign, uh, to what extent was your trip to Puerto Rico uh, part of, you know, solidarity work with teachers? To what extent was it fact-finding? And to what extent was this kind of an impetus for a lot of the political work that you're doing with this campaign. How did your experience in Puerto Rico relate to the other work you're doing? How, how these things are connected, you know, might seem far-fetched to some, but once you connect the notion that, okay, Puerto Rico is a commonwealth. They don't have, while they're, you know, they have citizenship, they don't have the same rights and the same, you know, abilities as citizens here. Like they don't, they can't vote for the president, right? Um, they don't have say over many of the things that uh, are connected to trade. For instance, the they cannot receive any goods unless it's coming from directly from the United States. So it has they have to go through all these other means. So one of the reasons why uh, aid was not able to reach people in Puerto Rico in a timely fashion, I'll tell you, the international community wanted to send their their people and their supplies and resources to Puerto Rico. But what was keeping them was this, you know, law, this ridiculous law that said all the things had to come through U.S. shipping port. Um, and the the, um, I don't know if people know, but Puerto Rico is under austerity because of a debt um, that was imposed basically by Wall Street. The okay, same people who fund Governor Cuomo's campaigns, um, they have a stranglehold with, you know, double-digit uh, interest rates, a debt that should be illegal, a debt that should not even be placed on these people. Uh, because of this debt, they're making huge cuts in all of the public service areas. That Puerto Rico is one of the last places that had a public utility, right, electricity. It was a public utility that was just sold uh, recently. And all of these things that were, you know, we would say are part of, you know, building strong community and um, democracy are being auctioned off and sold off, um, stolen from the people of Puerto Rico. And it is a form of a modern-day colonialism, extractionist, we call it an extractionist economy, to go in, um, extract all the resources and the goods and things that people rely on for livelihood um, for the benefit of a few. I think people um, who are your listeners can understand and relate to that. And in large part, the key players all reside in Wall Street, um, are part of the 1%, and are our governor's buddies. And the reason why, as a teacher, I'm so connected is because my own union leadership, um, as Eric mentioned, is deeply connected to the establishment Democratic Party, right? Um, and it is the very reason why we have not been able to make the kind of gains or even have been even been able to prevent a lot of these austerity measures imposed on us here, um, let alone someplace like Puerto Rico. And so I feel out of obligation, um, this need to connect against a common enemy, if you want to call it. I think also one point to make is that uh, the 
that this fight is also a fight against white supremacy because if yes. you look if you look at I mean again I mean we we mentioned New Orleans who are the people that are directly impacted the most who are the people directly impacted by Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico who are the people most directly impacted by almost literally any of these disasters that are seen as opportunities by the by the vultures of disaster capitalism it is almost never going and actually we're we're speaking here on the eve of Hurricane Florida which actually is going to be a pretty interesting mm. test case in all of this as a bunch of white people are going right. to be impacted by a major hurricane. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens to those people and to their schools. Absolutely. Um, you know, I don't know, last, last year there was a small hurricane in Texas. I wouldn't say small. Um, but there was a very quick response and things were, you know, quote unquote, back to normal relatively quickly. And the same could not be said for, you know, someplace like Puerto Rico. Um, it's just the, the differences are very stark in treatment. So... Gia, tell me, and I'm going to ask a question. Obviously, there, there, there's a reason why I'm asking it in this way, and it's not to sound insulting at all, but to get at a root, I think, a fundamental question about electoral politics, and mm-hmm. and that is, and that is, Gia, what's the fucking point? Right. Why why run unless you're running as a Democrat? I get. I was asked that question. I I think it's important to be able to use the election as a platform. As an educator, um, take whatever we can get to, one, highlight the problem with the entire electoral process here in New York State, the fact that it's a winner-take-all system. There are states that have proportionate you know, ratings uh, elections, um, but the fact that we have a rigged election electoral process puts us into a position where the left can never seem to get out of its own shit. Pardon my French. Um, It's meant to be that way. It's designed to be that way. And we have people in positions of power within our own unions that are helping to maintain that. And so I run to be able to highlight these hypocrisies and hopefully be able to align with some of our, you know, I have colleagues and friends um, who part of, you know, the Democratic Socialists of America branch here in New York City, who have worked very, you know, hard to get the the endorsement for like Cynthia Nixon and Germani Williams, both running on Democratic Party ticket, um, or any member who considers himself a socialist but running as a Democrat. Um, that can't be our it, winning a position or a seat in a power within the Democratic Party is is basically futile, and using the election electoral process to highlight issues like I've been able to use this opportunity to go across upstate New York, talk to people, um, talk to folks in Long Island and other places, and just you know like we were doing before, but in a through a context that highlights the entire rigged system to begin with and why that has to be one of the first things we put um, on the table at any, at any opportunity to change the electoral process. And I think also it's an important uh, educational point to help people to understand that all of these institutions of power, whether it's in the context of education, whether it's in the context of electoral politics, that to use the word that you just used, that these are rigged. In other mm-hmm. words, that like uh, w- with regard to schools, that these so-called underperforming schools mm-hmm. are oftentimes facing very, very steep odds and the, the, the deck is stacked against them with underfunding and with uh, dumping of uh, kids that have been pulled out 
out of other schools, especially charter schools and mm-hmm. all of these other uh, very vicious tactics that are used to deliberately sabotage and destroy schools and school communities and ultimately those communities themselves. And similarly, in the electoral arena, we have a rigged system that is designed to sabotage, subvert, and otherwise prevent any alternative voices from speaking out and from uh, potentially gaining any kind of power. And so essentially, it seems that the connection in all of these things is that you're fighting, you're, you're fighting against the forces of capital that are trying to continue to monopolize power. Exactly. Exactly. So I guess the, the, the logical question then is, so what happens next? I mean, as you, as you just mentioned, I mean, if the, if the campaign is a platform to highlight issues and all of the, you know, all, all, all of the other, um, you know, struggles that you've been involved in, well, election day is going to come and go. I think we, I think we know exactly uh, from previous examples what the Democrats are going to do, what the Republicans are going to do, and how this is all going to shake out from the perspective of the major parties. But from the perspective of of, of GLE and mm-hmm. of radi- radical educators and of mm-hmm. people that are involved in the campaign, where is this going? You know. <sighs> I do see this as a very interesting and unique election year. I will say that it does feel different. I don't know about you. Um, It might be because of the fallout after the Trump, you know, election. But I do see this as moving forward, the connections that we've made through this election process, the kind of discussions that we're having around socialism, around... um, the electoral process, campaign finance. Shouldn't we have, you know, public campaign, uh, publicly funded campaigns rather than privately funded? Um, these are not conversations that we've had in the past. And they, the elections are feeling a little more high stakes to people. There was definitely more interest in getting the vote out. Um, but it's that offers an opportunity, opportunity then to talk about the process, the electoral process and the kind of power structures that we have in place to take that conversation to the next level that I feel were not as apparent before. They weren't as easy to get to. Um, You know, we'd always be like in our isolated silos talking about about climate justice or, um, you know, healthcare for all, you know, these issues kind of tended to be separate. um, And that to me felt problematic. But now we were able to say, and it, I think it's also helped through Occupy, that New York State um, nationally is has the greatest income gap of any state, and those that is a clear indicator that we'd have higher instances of things like mass incarceration, um, drug abuse, violence, opioid addictions, like all of these societal ails, as you would call it. Um, are connected to income gap, not poverty, which was what was thought at one time. But that if we really want to get to the root of what ails us, we ha- it's about shifting our value set, um, not looking down on pov- people in poverty as, oh, they didn't work hard enough. You know, all of these subconscious ideas that we have in terms of um, an elitist society, um, because of the huge income gap that we have in New York State, it represents the value set that we have. Uh, so I see this truly as um, moving forward as an opportunity to have those kinds of conversations about values that the left hasn't, and I, I, you know, I'm going to be really honest, that we haven't had this conversation as a collective because we've argued over um, differences of over um, issues, specifics and issues. Rather, we need to come around a common set of values and frame our understandings and everything else around them so we know what we're all fighting for, even if we have differences um, along specific issues. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And um, one point I would like to just highlight um, and, and get your comment on is what I think to be uh, not necessarily malicious in any way, uh, no. but 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 a but a, a sort of um, 
skewed perspective that a lot of people have on this upsurge of left-wing activism, and particularly in the electoral arena, and that is that this somehow magically emerged out of some kind of, uh, you know, ether from which Bernie Sanders, you know, Mm. is the godfather, right? That Bernie Sanders, you know, sort of seeded all of of these young candidates who are, you know, talking about socialism and all that, which is, of course, nonsense, because you and I have been talking about these issues since well before Bernie Sanders ran in 20. 16, uh, that, uh, you know, I remember going to the more, uh, or I guess it was the, the core, the Congress of mm-hmm. radical educators, like, gosh, what was that like 2011 mm-hmm. maybe or 2012, you know, and we were talking about all of these issues as well. And so the point that I wanted to get at is how do we connect all of these seemingly disparate uh, upsurges, whether they're related to Bernie Sanders and fighting within the Democratic Party or outside of the Democratic Party or within education and organized labor. It seems that we're going to need some way to unite uh, these various strains or strands mm-hmm. on the on the left. And I don't know whether electoral, you know, electoral campaigns is really how that's going to happen, but it does seem to be that uh, historical circumstances are conspiring to force us into that position. Yeah, I mean, that theory around Bernie Sanders is a real danger um, because it's a way of pulling people further into a direction, you know, that could keep us from real change. And so I I do think the, the real answers lie in a clarity around folks who really understand, you know, what is, what is necessary in terms of, uh, creating and maintaining a viable, um, society. And that's definitely not going to be within the democratic party and they can disguise it in all kinds of different ways. Um, but I think there has to be clarity and I'll, and I'll tell you right now that it's, I did go, I, I was on a panel with uh, three Democratic candidates and I spoke to one of them on the side and I, you know, I said, do you really think that you're going to be able to make any changes within the Democratic Party? Do you think that it's transformable? And that person who's a prominent Democratic candidate right now said he didn't think so. He really didn't think so. So I, you know, I don't know why that person would continue on. I don't, I think we have to get to the root of the fear. Um, and I don't know that I have the answer, but I know that just having these kinds of conversations, um, and, and that's the hard work. It's the hard work. It's not going to happen through emails or email blasts. Um, It's not going to happen, you know, even through large gatherings. It's literally going to be, uh, you know, people to people uh, conversations and to really shift. And I think it's and I I think it's also important to remember that there are issues that uh, are in some senses universal. And I'm I'm not advocating for you know trying to uh, I'm obviously anybody who knows mm. me and knows this show knows I'm the last person in the world to coddle or cater to right wing fascists or any of those types of people or the the chuds of the MAGA sphere. But um, the question, the, the question that I want to pose to you is, have you found that as an educator, as a teacher, as a mother, that you're able to connect with people in a different way uh, around political issues than you would if it was solely over those political issues? Because I found in talking to people who were uh, in West Virginia, in Oklahoma, in Arizona, as these teacher strikes were going on, that, that you know, it, everybody can relate to their children getting a bad education, to their children getting a raw deal, whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, mm-hmm. whether you're whether you're a lunatic Trumpster or not, people can relate to issues like that and to, uh, you know, those types of feelings. And I just I wonder whether there's a way for progressive social justice minded people to be able to capitalize on the sort of universal shared experience of of, of watching your children suffer the sins of politicians and of Wall Street. Yeah, 
absolutely as an as a teacher you know the there's a ton of research around um how the brain learns um it's it's an emotional activity they found it's um an activity that requires connection with other people and it's only deeply learned through an experience right so through that understanding i know that sharing stories is vital people connect through common you know common struggles through their stories um and that's why you know I've organized with I've been trained through labor notes for their organizer trainings and a big chunk of the work is how to have an organizing conversation. And I feel like that's what I've been doing as a teacher is kind of listening to kids, listening to students, listening to my colleagues um around what's been ailing them and then actually exercising empathy. When you, when you're naturally empathetic and you listen there's an understanding of the struggle and then you can put labels on it it is um that's capitalism or you know that's because of whatever but when you take all that away at the root of it and that's what i meant by having clarity um it doesn't matter what you call it right is right and wrong is wrong you know um i know it it's how we frame it and who we connect it to that we have to be careful of because ultimately you know the the real power and the solutions lie with work with regular people not by relying on a select few that we've given so much you know omnipotent power to um and for them to manipulate it and uh use it for evil so you know what i found is those as a teacher having those connections and teaching kids how to have those kind of conversations with each other actually caring and listening um problem solving together it's it's all just like basic like learning how to learn um activities that develop de- you know really help develop independent thinkers i think that's a big part of where the key is and i've i see that everywhere i go i mean especially in puerto rico the communities are not playing around they don't mess around they are very connected they're i i sat around with them for hours in the hot sun um well that you know that school that was occupying um all summer just telling stories all day and connected um through their common struggle despite whatever political affiliation they may have they may have had prior Yeah, I think that I think that you're absolutely right and I think that there are a number of ways to connect people and to 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 bring people into the fold of a broader movement and there are forces that go well beyond our ability as individuals or even as groups that are uh you know that shape movements and 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 shape the trajectory of political movements and I agree with you that we're in a very unique historical moment politically speaking and economically and in terms of the climate and a, a lot of other things so uh certainly anything is possible and i want to commend you for all the work that you do gia both in terms of this campaign but more broadly in terms of uh you know the activism work and 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 the work you do in building bridges which i think is very very important uh again listeners i just want to urge you to follow gia and the campaign and her other work as well the campaign twitter gia for lt governor the facebook page gia lee for lieutenant governor and of course uh also recommend especially if you're in new york but not only if you're in New York, the Moore Caucus, that's M-O-R-E, the Movement of Rank-and-File Educators, as well as the Opt Out and Raise the Stakes uh, movements, also very, very important. Gia, thanks for all your work and for coming on Counterpunch today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Eric, for having me and all your work. Listeners, thank you as always for checking us out and for sticking with us. And I will be back next week with another excellent episode, if I do say so myself. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you again real soon.